Well, I'd like to have you turn with me to John chapter 17. But to begin, I'm going to ask a question. Is it fair to say that everyone in the world wants to be happy? Do you want to be happy? Is that a fair question? Is it fair to say that uh, sometimes when we have a choice to make, we're going to choose that which is likelier to make us happy? Does that make sense to you also? Why, sure, and there isn't anything wrong with that. Don't, don't let me have you thinking that I'm going in, in a direction that, that uh, you shouldn't want to be happy. As a matter of fact, everyone in the whole wide world should be happy. Ah, but there is caveat in there. There's something that we need to think about. Is it fair to think that people make decisions based on what will make them more comfortable, make them more happy? To what extent do you think people will go to be happy anyway? Yeah. Have you ever met somebody who started drinking who shouldn't be drinking? Why do people start drinking anyway? You know, I had an uncle and... I, you know, I don't even know how to say this, but I had an uncle who was actually the town drunk. Now, that's not flattering. And as a matter of fact, I love this guy very much. I worked with him. He was one of the most intelligent men that I knew. He was, one, he was probably one of the richest men in that town that, that he lived in. He owned one of the nicest houses. He owned the sawmill just outside of town. He was very, very good man. Very strong man also. But he'd had an experience when he was young. When he was young, his mother died. I think his mother was 33 when he died. I don't know what age he was. He was one of her older children. And so he was shipped off to live with someone else. And so he was living with a man and a woman who had a daughter about his age. In any case, the man went to town one day, left him at home with the daughter, and the daughter had ideas in her head. I, you know, ideas. <laughs> and so she, while her parents was gone, decided to take all her clothes off. And when the parents came back and they had forgotten something, I don't know what, the parents came back and they found him and her together. He had all his clothes on, but she had had her clothes off. And they thought that it was his fault. And so he got the beating of his life. Well, you know, he was very, very young at the time. And it scarred him psychologically, you know. And so after that, he started drinking. It seemed like the only thing, that, uh, the only thing he could do to get relief in this thing. He did get married, but all of his married life, he had some issues with sexuality in his mind. Like he... He, he was afraid of it all his life, you see. And so, when he and I worked together, and we did work together for a whole year, well, it was actually about six months one time, and we were working at the sawmill together, and we would walk home because it was just outside of town, and when we would walk home, I would walk home, and he would stop at the hotel every night. And he would come home drunk as a skunk every night. Now, why do people do that? Why do people take drugs? Do you think some people live to regret doing things like that? Why do people risk business and family and reputation and hurting people? Why do people risk doing that and still commit adultery? Why do people risk going to prison and steal things? Why do people buy, buy houses they can't afford? Are these questions worth asking? Is there happiness to be found in the pursuit of money, in the pursuit of, of position and power and fame and pleasure? Isn't there a downside? Can there be a downside to some of these things? What do you think? 
I like to ask this question also, and I've been asking a lot of questions, so I guess I like to ask questions anyway. What is it that makes temptation a temptation? Do you know what it is? You can't help yourself. What? Because you can't have it, that's why you want it? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, let me tell you what it is that makes temptation a temptation. There is a promise in every temptation. And if there was not a promise in the temptation, there wouldn't be any, any temptation. You wouldn't be tempted if there wasn't a promise in it. But do you know that every promise in every real temptation now is a lie? Oh, what do you think you're going to get? You know, there's a devil up there and the devil thinks to himself, now what is it I can present? You know, I had a, I had a friend, she was a lady. Her husband had left her a year before. And she came into my office one time and she was just crying. She just couldn't understand it. Her husband had left her a year before and he had told her the reason he left her is because she was too controlling. He turned around and he married a woman that was ten times more controlling. And when, you, and when you put the two women together, the one he left was as beautiful as can be and the, one, the other one he, he married was not nearly as beautiful as the one he left and she was ten times more controlling. What in the world? And do you know that I had to explain to this lady that that's how it works? That the devil has got to throw something at you that you think is better than what you've got. Otherwise, you wouldn't go there, would you? No, but it's got to be worse than what you've got. Otherwise, the devil wouldn't waste his time tempting you to get something better. It doesn't make any sense. The devil doesn't work that way. And so the thing that makes a temptation a temptation is the promise that's in it. But there's a lot of people that regret the decisions that they have made. Have you ever never or have you never met someone who wished they hadn't pursued happiness in all the wrong places? Oh, sure, sure. Do some people wish they could change the past? Do you wish you could change some things in the past? I do. There are some decisions that I have made in the past that I wish I could undo. Don't you? Sure, sure. I wish there's a lot of things I could change. Yes, yes, yes. That's what I'd like to talk about tonight. Change. Is it possible to change? What do you think? Yeah. Let me tell you a story, and you probably heard some of this story. You might even have seen a movie called The Mutiny on the Bounty. In 1787, December 23, 1787, a ship left England to go to the West Indies. On the way to the West Indies, they stopped in Jamaica and they took on a load of breadfruit. That's what they needed to bring to Tahiti or somewhere like that. So anyway, they got to Tahiti in 1788. That's nearly a full year later. They took a long time in those days to sail those, those seas. But hey, England is a long way from Tahiti. I'll tell you that. Well, they dropped off their breadfruit, I think. That's what they did. They had, they spent some time getting more stuff, uh, provisions, you know, to get on ship. And then about six months later, they left. Tahiti, and three weeks later, somewhere near the island of Tonga, a man by the name of Fletcher Christian decided that he didn't like the captain. This is Captain Bly, you understand, of mutiny on the bounty, okay? This captain was very cruel. This captain was very belligerent. This captain was overbearing. And so Fletcher Christian decided that he would mutiny. And so he got the crew together and they had a plan. And by the time it was all over, they put Captain Bly and 18 people on a 23-foot little boat. And they 
sent them off to sea. And it's amazing, these men should never have survived because they had to go 3,700 miles in order to get rescued. And they made it. Must have been a good captain in spite of his temperament and in spite of his character and his personality. They made it. And that that wasn't good for Fletcher Christian. (laughs) Because by the time he got to England, then Fletcher Christian and his mutineers then were all going to be hung if they were ever going to be caught. So anyways, uh, Fletcher Christian went back to Tahiti, got some provision, he had the ship by the way, got some provision, took on some women and some children and sailed away and began looking for a little island somewhere where he could settle in and where no one would find him. A little island lost in the Pacific somewhere. He ended up in an island called Pitcairn. And when he got there, they unloaded all the ship and they burnt the ship. So that no one could find him. You know, a ship going by, seeing a ship by an island would be suspicious. And they say, if it says the bounty on it, you know, sailors used to know all the ships that existed in those days. And so they had to burn the ship down. That's what happened. Anyway, um, everything didn't turn out really well on the little island. As a matter of fact, these men that were with Fletcher Christian, and Fletcher Christian himself was not a Christian at the time. He only had the name, by the way. And so they figured out how to make alcohol. And the first thing you know, they were fighting among themselves over the women probably. And the first thing you know, not the first thing, but it took a little while, out of the nine men that were on that ship and on that island, only one was left. All were murdered or committed suicide. The only one left was a man by the name of John Adams. John Adams went looking through all the stuff they had taken off the ship and in a trunk he found a Bible. And that Bible he began to read and it transformed his life. So he began to teach the people on the island, which were only his own people, mostly women and children, to teach them what he understood of the Bible and of course the whole island was converted, all 88 acres of it and the few people that were there. In 1937, there were 233 people on the island. Well, today, it's down to about 47 people on the island. It actually got to be too crowded, and and so some of the people decided they would go and live on some other island somewhere else. Now, can the Bible make murderous drunks into sanctified saints? Can it? Yes, it can. As a matter of fact, that's the purpose of God with the Word of God. That's why He has given us the Word of God. I've had you turn to John chapter 17, and the page number is 958. If you're not familiar with the Bible, 958. This is John chapter 17. We're looking at verse 17. Jesus is speaking here. As a matter of fact, it's a prayer. Jesus is praying here. And He says, Sanctify them through Thy truth. Thy word is truth. We've been studying the plan of salvation together and we've been wanting to study the plan of salvation through the model of the sanctuary. So you see the sanctuary here as it was in the wilderness in the days of Moses. God had Moses build this sanctuary and the sanctuary was supposed to be a model of Uh, for the solution to the sin problem. This is all that that's about. And the whole sanctuary represents Jesus, the whole thing. That's why the Bible says, 
Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. And Jesus says, I am the way. So the sanctuary and Jesus are one of the same thing. Jesus says, no man comes to the Father but by me. There's only one way to the kingdom of heaven. There's only one way to salvation. Jesus is the way. The way is in the sanctuary. And so the whole sanctuary represents Jesus. If some of you have come in late, I want you to understand that. Well, here's how it goes. How it goes. Uh, the, uh, the Israelites were intense on all sides of the sanctuary. They were at least half a mile from the sanctuary. That was on purpose. A man who found himself over there and he had sinned had to take a lamb because this over here represents the world. The man takes a lamb. He makes his way to the sanctuary. There is no way to the sanctuary which represents Jesus, represents God. There is no way to the sanctuary except through a lamb. The lamb is the bridge. He comes to the door of the sanctuary. A priest meets him there with the lamb. The priest escorts him to the altar of sacrifice which represents the cross of Calvary. And there the man confesses his sin on the lamb. He repents of his sin. He's forgiven of his sins right there. And he takes a knife and he kills the lamb and the lamb dies for the sinner. The lamb's innocence is transferred to the sinner and the guilt of the sinner is transferred to the lamb. That represents the cross of Calvary. And then the next article of furniture we see is the labor which represents baptism. All that we've already studied and I'm sorry to go so fast through all that. Now what happens is that many Christians relax at this point. Well, why wouldn't they relax? They've been to the cross They've confessed their sins, they've repented, now they're justified, they're pardoned, they're forgiven, and they've been baptized. Are we not saved at this point? Well, friends, yes, we are saved at this point. Praise God for salvation through the cross of Calvary, through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Ah, but is God done with us yet? How can the sanctuary from here to there complete the whole plan of salvation? What is the point for the rest of the sanctuary if that is so? But it isn't so. And we need to know that it isn't so. We need to keep on going through the sanctuary to find out what it is that God plans for His people beyond baptism. Okay? You see what happens here when you finally get forgiven and you find baptism. You've made a commitment to God. You are Christian now and you have salvation now. Ah, but very little has changed in your life. We are saved. Praise God. But now, what about the old habits? What about the bad things you like to do? Will they still be a temptation to you? Are you going to do everything right after this? As those of you who have been Christians for a while, the minute you give your heart to Jesus, you have salvation. Does that mean you'll never fail? You'll never fall? Are you now fit to be a candidate for heaven? Do you know that the Bible says there shall in no wise enter into heaven anything that defileth? Do you know that even once we are saved, God says, I need to clean you up. I need to clean you up. It's true. And this is what the rest of the sanctuary is going to address. If you turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. Turn with me there. 1 John chapter 3. This is page 1081. I want you to see this so clearly. It's, um, it amazes me that it is so clear. And how many Christians actually miss this point in the Scriptures. So we're in 1 John chapter 3. And if I'm talking fast, it's because we got a long way to go. We're in 1 John chapter 3. Let's look at verse 1, 2, and 3. 
Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. Ah, friends, listen. You can see what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. We come to the cross, we confess our sins. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. What manner of love is that? Do you know that you're considered a son of God or a daughter of God at that point? That's what it says. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons and the daughters of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it never knew Him. Look at verse 2 now. Now watch verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God based on the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ at the cross of Calvary. Now, today, we are the children of God. Ah, but it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And so there is more than one aspect to salvation. We can come to the cross and find salvation, but we can't stop there because Jesus is coming and when He appears, we must be like Him when He appears. Do you see that in the verse? Is it true? It's the truth. And so God wants to put in operations a system by which we are cleansed of our sins and by which we can become more and more like Jesus. And so look at verse 3. Every man that has this hope in him. What hope? Well, the hope of being like Jesus, the hope of being cleaned up, the hope of being purified. Every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he or even as Jesus is pure. And how is a person to purify himself? Jesus said it. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Purify them through the truth. Thy word is truth. Now, is that all found in the sanctuary? Why, yes, friends, we've been to the cross. We've been baptized. And maybe some of you have not been baptized. Hang on, we'll see to that too someday. But we can come there, make a commitment in our hearts to Jesus Christ. But after that, He's not done. Now we're going to go into the holy place. In our walk in salvation, we're going to walk into the holy... By the way, you can only walk into that holy place by faith. Do you know that this part of the sanctuary represents heaven? You and I can't go to heaven, but we can go there by faith. And we must go there by faith. And so when we enter into the sanctuary, we're going to find that there are three pieces of furniture in the holy place of the sanctuary. This is called the holy place... And the upper part here is called the most holy place. So now we're entering into the holy place. Three articles of furniture. One right here, one right there. This is called the table of showbread. This is called the candelabra. And this is called the altar of incense. And today we would like to look at the table of showbread. This is where we're going to spend the rest of our evening. We're going to look at the other articles as the days go by. Okay, turn with me to Exodus chapter 37. Exodus chapter 37, page 85 in your Bibles. Exodus chapter 37. We're going to look at verses 10 to 12 in Exodus 37. And he made the table of shittim wood that could be acacia wood, by the way. It's it's the same wood. It's the same tree. Okay. Verse, um, what did I say, 10? And he made the table of acacia wood. Two cubits was the length thereof, that's 36 inches, a cubit is 18 inches. 
and a cubit, the breadth thereof, 18 inches wide, and a cubit and a half, the height thereof, 27 inches high. So it's a very small table. And he overlaid it with pure gold and made thereunto a crown of gold round about. And also he made thereunto a border of a handbreadth round about and made a crown of gold for the border thereof round about. Well, anyway, it's a little table this high, this big, it's not very big. And the crown, the handbreadth there, that's at the top of the table. There's two little borders going around a hand, uh, the difference of a hand, uh, the space of a hand between the two borders. That's called the crown. Okay. What is it that goes on to this table? Well, if you go to Leviticus chapter 24, this is page 112. Leviticus chapter 24, page 112. We're going to look at verses 5 to 8. And thou shalt make fine flour and bake twelve cakes thereof, two tenth deals that shall be in one cake. And thou shalt set them in two rows, six in a row, upon the pure table before the Lord. And thou shalt put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be on the bread for a memorial, even an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Well, we don't have time to explain everything that's going on here, but on that little table here, and you get a better picture of it here, on that little table, this picture is a little bit wrong because there should be two stacks of bread like that. And the pitcher of wine goes on the goes on the, the shelf below. But it doesn't matter. This is the picture. This is the table of showbread. There should be two piles of bread right there. It's called the table of showbread. And there's bread and there's wine. You ever hear of bread and wine in Christianity? Why, sure. We will do a communion service and we will have bread and wine served there. It represents something, doesn't it? What does it represent? Turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Very easy. You, you probably know it already. If you don't, you're going to know it in a second. And the bread represents something specific and we can know what it is. And in John chapter 6, we're looking at verses 48 and 43. Then Jesus... Uh, let me look at verse 48 first. Jesus is speaking here. He says, I am the bread of life. So the bread in the sanctuary here represents Jesus. In verse 53, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say to you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, represented by wine, ye have no life in you. And if you don't mind looking at another verse, look at verse 57. As the living Father has sent me and I live by the Father, so he that eats me, even he shall eat, live by me. And so, you know, it, it hardly made sense. There were people listening to Jesus when he said that and they were thinking in terms of how in the world are we going to eat him? And what would be the purpose of eating him anyway? It doesn't make sense at all, but that's not what he was thinking. We're talking about because in verse 48 he said, I am the bread of life. And the Jewish people that he was addressing had a very good acquaintance with the sanctuary. They should have known what he was talking about. Do you know that Jesus is the bread of life? Do you know how to eat Jesus? Go to John chapter 1. Go to John chapter 1. We look at verse 14, first of all. The Word was made flesh. Who's that? 
Jesus and dwelt among us. Go to verse 1 of chapter 1 in, cha- in John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is God, and He was with His Father for, for all of eternity. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. Didn't we read that in John chapter 6? If you want to have life, you need to eat the bread of life. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. That's who Jesus is. Okay. Go to Matthew chapter 4 now. I I promised you we would look at a lot of verses. Matthew chapter 4. We're looking at verse 4. Jesus is in the wilderness. He's being tempted by the devil. And the devil comes to him with a temptation and he says to him, why don't you take that stone and make a bread out of it? Jesus hadn't eaten in 40 days and he was emaciated, he was skinny, he was weak and the devil came at his weakest point to tempt him and he said, hey, you think you're the son of God? Prove it. All you got to do is make that stone into bread. Now what did Jesus tell him? Look at verse 4. We're in Matthew 4 verse 4 and this is page 851. But he answered and said to the devil now, It is written, Man shall not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. There. Eat the word of God. That's the same as eating Jesus, because Jesus is the word. He is the bread of life. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're looking at verse 15. This is page 1057. So, 2 Timothy chapter 2, page 1057. This is Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. The Apostle Paul is giving us some good advice, some good counsel. Verse 15, study. That's how we eat the bread of life. Study to show thyself approved unto God. Would you like to be approved unto God? Oh, if there's any approval that we need, it's to be approved of heaven, right? Now, men usually, and women, I mean, human beings, like to find approval from the people that they are with. You know, little girls and little boys, they grow up in a family, and they love to have approval from daddy and from mommy. And there are some families that don't give approval very easily. And there are some grown-ups that have grown up without receiving approval. And they are so insecure. Have you ever met insecure people because they've never found approval? Well, let me tell you, it's bad not having approval from your parents. But I tell you, it's far worse not having approval from your God. So study, that's what it says. And I'd like to encourage you to do it. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so do it. And do you know why you need to do it? Because it's in the answer is in 2 Timothy. We're right there in the book of 2 Timothy. Go to chapter 3, verses 15 to 17. And that'll give, you us, that'll give us the answer as to why we need to study, why we need to eat the bread of life. And that from a child. Now Paul is speaking to Timothy. Timothy was raised by his mother and grandmother, Lois. And that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able, now watch what the Holy Scriptures are able to do, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, as a matter of fact, is given by inspiration of God and profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction of righteousness. 
in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect. Wow. Thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And so you and I can be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Perfect in Jesus Christ by studying the Word. And that's the point of the bread of life. That's why God instituted it. Do you see what God wants for His people? We are given salvation at the cross and we can appreciate the salvation that we have at the cross. But life, spiritual life, is not simply to be maintained. Spiritual life should be, should be improved. Should be, uh, we should grow. We should mature. We should strengthen in our spiritual life. Don't you think so? Yes. Yes. Just like in our physical life, there's, there's no way to grow unless we eat. And so, spiritually, it's the same thing. There's no way to grow unless we eat spiritual food. And you can notice people who don't study their Bibles, they shrink spiritually. And you can see it. They retrograde in their spiritual experience. And pretty soon, they're out the door because they don't want anything to do with God. And they've lost their experience. Can the Word of God bring change? Yes, it can. And I want you to see something in Matthew chapter 8. This is page 855. This is one of my favorite stories. I use it all the time with the lifestyle guests that come to Eden Valley. You're in Matthew chapter 8. It's a fantastic story. And I hope I can bring it across. We're in Matthew chapter 8. We're looking at verse 5. And when Jesus, uh, and when Jesus entered, or was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him. What's a centurion? There you are. He's a captain or a commander in any case of a hundred troops. That's a centurion. Now, is that a weak man or a strong man? And not only that, he's a Roman soldier. So he comes from a pagan background. We have here a pagan Roman soldier, commander of a hundred men. He's not a pussycat. He's a strong man. We need to get that picture because of what happens after this. And by the way, I said he was a pagan Roman soldier. He doesn't turn out to be a pagan at all. But that's his background nonetheless. If you look at verse 6, what he says there, he comes to Jesus and he says to him, Lord, my servant lies at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. How much, how much time elapses between the time that the soldier makes a request and Jesus answers the request? How much time elapses? None. It's immediate. Ah, oh, friends, listen. If Jesus responds to a pagan Roman soldier that quickly, how do you suppose he'll respond to you? Do you have faith? Do you have as much faith as this pagan Roman soldier? Yeah. Oh, if we had faith. Jesus could do so much more for us. Really. Really. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy. No, no. I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. But speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. Do you see something here? This is amazing. The, the, the centurion, the pagan Roman soldier, understood who Jesus was. The pagan Roman soldier knew that Jesus was God. He says, you don't have to come to my house. You can stay right here. All you got to do is say the word and my servant shall be healed. Now that's a lot of power. And the man understood this. Now what's amazing about this is that Jesus had come down from heaven, had come to his chosen people, the Israelites, and his own received him not. John chapter 1 verse 11, I think. 
His own received him not, but a pagan Roman soldier knew exactly who he was. The Israelites didn't know who he was. Isn't that amazing? As a matter of fact, even Jesus was amazed. Now, I don't know how you can catch Jesus by surprise, but this guy did. Yeah. And he explained what he meant. He illustrated what he meant in verse 9. He says, I'm a man under authority, having soldiers under me. I say to this one, go, and he goes to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. He does it because I have power in my word. Just like you mothers, you have children, and when you say to your children, do this, they do it because you have power in your word, right? Well, maybe not as much as a soldier would have. Yeah. Well, for sure not as much as Jesus would have. Jesus is God. Yeah. So, he understood. And Jesus was surprised. Look at verse 10. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled. Can you imagine? He marveled. And said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. I came down to find faith in my people. I looked for faith everywhere. And I found it over there. Over there. Pagan Roman soldier. He had faith. That's what I was looking for. And he was blown away. And notice the indictment after that. Verse verse 11. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Many people are going to be in the kingdom of heaven. But watch now. But the children of the kingdom, the church members, uh uh-oh, shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Isn't that a sad indictment? Makes you almost not want to be a church member. (laughs) Oh, no, no. Don't go there. (laughs) No, no. We want to be part of God's family, don't we? Yes, yes. But we want to be part of God's family that believes like this man believed. If you look at um, the last verse, verse 13, Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way as you have believed. So be it done unto you. And his servant was healed that selfsame hour. I'm going to skip a couple of verses that I had in that sermon. I just want to tell you, I began reading the Bible when I was 25 years old. And um, I thought I'd read the Bible through, cover to cover, and I would make a decision as to whether the Bible was what it claimed that it was, the Word of God. It didn't take very long. Within a couple of weeks, I knew that it was true. And the very first prayer I prayed, I got on my knees And I gave my heart to the Lord. I'm going to tell a little story a little later on about that also. But this is one of the prayers that I prayed. You see, I had problems in my life. Like everybody has problems in their lives. I had an addiction in my life. Like everyone might have some kind of addiction. Some kind of habit, you understand, that I just couldn't shake. And I had tried and I had prayed. and Well, no, that's the problem. I hadn't prayed. I had tried and I had tried and I had tried and I had tried to overcome this issue in my life and there was just no overcoming. Now I'm reading the Bible and finally I come, I come to realize that God can speak the whole, the whole universe into existence by just speaking it. And I thought, man, that's a lot of power. Have you ever looked into the universe? The universe? Have you ever seen one of these astrologists, astronomers rather? You know, 
go with telescopes and show you how huge the universe is? Have you ever seen a doctor go with a microscope and show you how huge the universe is in, in microcosm? Ah, it's amazing. And so I began to realize the power that God had. And in my first prayer, I got on my knees and I said, God, I give myself to you, but I have a problem and I've tried and I've tried and I can't shake this problem. There's nothing I can do. But this I believe. I believe you created everything with your own word and I believe that you can help me. And so I said, I am going to try one more time, but I can't do it if you don't help me. Zip. What do you think happened? That was the end of that problem. Amazing. Now, if God does something like that for you, do you think He can do other things for you? Do you think I ever forgot that experience? By the way, that was like 39 years ago. Yeah. I came from a large family. I grew up in a Catholic home in a, in a, a French-Canadian family. We had eight children in our home. I quit school when I was 16 years old, grade 10. That was the end of my education. I went logging for a couple of years. By the way, I went logging with that uncle I was telling you about. And, uh, and I logged six months with him at, at his own sawmill. And then together we went to another logging show. We spent another more than a year there uh, logging. And then at 18 years old, because my father had worked in the mines all his life, he got me into the mines. That was my goal in life, to be a miner. I spent nine and a half years underground in a nickel and copper mine. At 20, I got married. I built a house before I was 20. The money was good in the mines, by the way. At 20, I got married, had three kids. I intended to read the Bible. Oh, this is where I come from, right there, Sudbury. These are the Great Lakes you recognize. It says Michigan. Oh, that, well, this is Lake Michigan here. <laughs> um... Anyway, these are the Great Lakes, and this here part from this line here is the dividing line, the border between America and Canada, and this is supposed to be northern Canada. Well, there's not too many towns, but I tell you what, beyond this is really, really cold. Um, but that's where I come from, right there, okay, in Ontario, in Canada. Now, I intended, like I said before, to read the Bible from cover to cover before I make a decision. Two weeks, I was convicted. But when I got on my knees two weeks later, I did pray another prayer also. I said, Lord, I'm 25 years old. Plenty of time. Call on me some other time. Have you ever said something like that? Oh boy, don't say that. Anyway, the Lord communicated with me and He said, you will not have another chance. And I thought, well, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, uh, and so I started arguing with God. Uh, there's got to be, I mean, what do you mean? It doesn't make any sense. I've got plenty of time. I'm 25 years old. I'll for sure live till I'm 30. Well, maybe 35. Anyway, it seemed to me like there was plenty of time. He said, you will not have another chance. I didn't understand what was going on. But because I understood that it was God that was speaking to me, I gave my heart to Him and I've never turned back. Praise God. No. I am so grateful too. <laughs> but here's what happened. I told you before I was working in the mines. And what I'm going to tell you now is probably not easy to understand. If you've never worked in the mines, you can't know the language. But I was working at what was called a seal stope. You don't know what that is. Let me try to explain. First of all, my partner and I were drilling a tunnel, nine by nine, 
in granite, okay? So nine feet by nine feet, a tunnel in granite, and we're going towards an ore body. When we hit the ore body, we crossed it, it was 40 feet, and then we were supposed to drill 14 and a half feet high, 40 feet wide, the whole length of the, of the vein, the ore body, the, the vein that was going there, and, and the first cut in the vein is called a stope. That's what it is. And it, it's called a sill stope. It's like virgin ground. Okay? Now what happens is you drill all the way through the, the, this vein. It could be thousands of feet. And then they bring in long hole machines. They drill two and a half, 250 feet up, 250 feet down. They blast the whole thing into small rock. And then they can mine it from underneath. You understand? So it was our job to do this sill stope. But the problem with this place was that there was soapstone mixed in with the ore. And, and soapstone is not, it doesn't, it doesn't, it isn't there like a mountain. It's there in boulders. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.